you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, we conclude our little mini-series, a three-part, more of it's more it's a prolonged great big sermon is really what it's been. We've broken it up three weeks, so I, I know you guys are, are shocked by that, but it really could be seen as one long sermon that we've covered these three weeks, and we come to the third of those. Proverbs 3, we'll read verses 1 through 12. We'll focus primarily on verses 7 and 8, and we'll make reference to some of the others as well. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Dear Father, as we turn to your word to read from your your genre of wisdom, we pray that we would indeed be wise, that our prayers would be granted to grow in our understanding of you, to grow in how to apply your word, and to also change our behavior. That is the very real intention of Proverbs, to mold our actions, our thoughts according to your word. Help us to do just that, that we might praise you and glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Proverbs 3, we'll read verses 1 to 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Ascends the reading of God's word. Boys and girls, I have a poem that I found that I want to read for you. And I want to see if you can understand what the point of this poem is. All right? It's about the wise old owl is what it's called, and it's this. A wise old owl sat in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Let's try to imitate that bird. I'm going to read it again. A wise old owl sat in an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Let's try to imitate that bird. You understand what that poem is trying to say? You see, what that poem is trying to say is that there is, and I'm going to use that bigger term, wisdom, in being one who sees and hears before one speaks. One who sits and understands, who, who thinks and contemplates before they speak, just like a wise old owl who sits and becomes wiser as, as it doesn't speak but listens. As it observes, you know, we could call this, we'll use another bigger term in that way, we could call this humility. Humility that understands he's not the one that needs to speak. He understands that he needs to learn. And there are a lot of lessons we can learn from such a poem, from such a bird, that we are to be humble, thoughtful before speech, observant, listening. You see, as we have gone through chapter 3 in Proverbs, we've seen the wisdom of the Lord. 
We saw that the wisdom of the Lord is understanding. The way of wisdom is understanding. It takes a knowledge of God's word and his law to apply it to life. We have to know what we are saying and believing, but we also saw that that understanding is grounded on the fear of the Lord itself, that that's primary to our understanding. We also looked that the way of wisdom is to trust, wholeheartedly trust in the Lord, that we cannot be wise if we do not trust in him and place our full weight upon him. And today we look at the last aspect from this chapter, humility. Now, we could have pulled many other topics from that chapter in which we read. You can look at it in chapter 3 as you would go on. You would talk about how we are to use wealth, the blessing that comes from wealth, even the discipline of the Lord and how we are to see that. But tonight we want to focus on humility because humility is a fundamental principle that must be applied before those things. Before we'll use our wealth well, before we will understand the discipline of the Lord, we must understand what is humility. Humility counting God and his word more important than our own. As we are that wise owl, especially to God's word, we sit and we read, we listen and we imitate that bird in that way. We don't stand upon our own understanding. And so our first point this evening is wisdom's way. Wisdom's way is humility. Verse 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's very interesting. It's very interesting that God would command, Be wise, my son, hear my instruction. Be wise, but don't think you are. Be wise, but don't know it. Be not wise in your own eyes. Do not think that you have all understanding. This prohibits being a know-it-all individualist who does it his own way, which is a state worse than a fool. Proverbs 26, verse 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The one who thinks he is wise has become worse than a fool. There's more hope for a fool because if a fool doesn't believe he's wise and believes he's a fool, he's at least one step closer to wisdom and understanding than he who is a fool and thinks he's wise cannot believe that you possess the wisdom. You cannot be proud in this wisdom. And it's interesting that there is a worse place than merely being a fool, but that fool who thinks he knows, he thinks he is wise. It's a fundamental principle of humility, not being wise in your own eyes. And this is hard. Why is this hard? As soon as we learn the right way and act in it, immediately we are assailed by pride. You see, you haven't reached the end of biblical humility and wisdom by just knowing what to do and even doing it. Knowing what to do is great. Doing it's even better, but there's one final step, and if we don't make this step, we've missed it all, and that is not to do it for ourselves, Not to do it for our pride, but in God, understanding that it is he who gives us that strength. And that's the hardest step to take because we get a little puffed up. It's like, okay, yeah, I know what's right. And then we swell even greater, and I did it. And that's when we want to go and see all these fools that don't know it anymore, and they don't do it. Oh, that final step is the difficult one. See, implied in that is also a, bit of, a fair bit of compassion fair bit of compassion that you understand others have not been blessed as you have. Humility to know that you would do no better outside of God. 
How do, we, how do we keep from doing that? How do we take that final step of not being wise in our own eyes, even when we do what's right? How do we take that final step? Well, the verse provides the answer. It's in the fear of the Lord. That's the way you will remain humble. How can you be wise in your own eyes when you continue to set before you the very image of God himself? You cannot. As you continue to fear him and be, be in, encounter the reverential awe of God and his word, you know that this isn't in you. It is not in your strength. And as you continue to set your gaze on the Lord and fear him, you understand you don't measure up an appropriate amount of that humility, understanding the Lord is so far exalted, I am so below, I can live what I deem to be a perfect life, and it is imperfect. It is, as Isaiah says, filthy rags before the Lord, the best that I can do. So we are not wise in our own eyes. We are humble. How can we be wise when we think of our original state totally depraved? We can't. This is important for us to learn. This should bring a very tangible, a very practical application in our living. We cannot be puffed up, swelling with our own knowledge, thinking ourselves so superior. Do you know who Jesus had some of his greatest criticism, some of his harshest words in God's word to? Who did he speak that way to? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who were wise in their own eyes and showed themselves to be greater fools than the sinners that they abhorred. God had very harsh words for them, these proud and arrogant, and that's not what we are called to be. You see, these fundamental principles, understanding, trust, and humility, you, you can't act in wisdom without them. You see, we might want to just come to Proverbs and read it. Oh, this is what it says? I can do that? Let me change my behavior. But if we miss the understanding of the fear of the Lord, if we miss that it has to be done in trust, if we miss that it must be done in humility, then we failed in the ways of wisdom. We failed to heed the instruction of the Father of chapter 3. My son, heed this. That's what he's saying. Heed this instruction. God instructs those of his to be humble. Humility is a lost virtue, it seems, in a world where we do praise those who are arrogant. I was reminded of this the past night. I was watching one of the NBA playoff games, and everyone's probably thinking, well, why'd you go there? Of course you're going to see a lot of arrogance and pride. And I like basketball, so I was watching it. But unfortunately, yes, that is what you see. I was reminded of it again as a player hit a three-pointer and was just pounding on his chest. He was running down court, glaring at his defender in this I beat you sort of glare pride and, and, and the arena, they were of course at home, this team, and so the arena was just praising and clapping and standing ovations and all that for what was actually a pathetic display. Pathetic display of arrogance and pride for what? To put a ball in a basket? To then try to heap scorn on another, thinking that I am so great, and, and that's easy to critique. It would be easy to sit there and say, yeah, the NBA is just, just get just sports in general or whatever. It's so arrogant. Yeah, just get rid of it. It's easy to say that, but what's hard to realize is that that is what we are prone to do. Now, we're clever. We're clever because most of the time we don't outwardly beat our chest. We don't outwardly glare at the one that we think we're better than, but we are constantly trying to prove that we are better. We constantly weigh ourselves against others. See, I would know not to do that. And I know better than that. Boys and girls, again, you could fall into this too. 
Your parents might be teaching you God's word, might be teaching you the way of wisdom, and you see a friend doing something wrong. And it's good that you would recognize that. It's good that you would be able to say, that's not right, they're doing something wrong. But what you might then want to do is, after saying they're doing something wrong, think, we don't do that, I don't do that. I'm better. Now, of course, there is the better way. Of course, it's better not to function in arrogance and pride, and yet we can see how quickly we'll fall into it in our minds. Adults, we do this all the time in work. Is that person better at the job than me? Is, is that person more knowledgeable of God's word than me? Is that person more spiritual than me? Comparing ourselves, and when we compare ourselves, we either feel superior or inferior. Just the way of pride, no different than the athlete pounding his chest as he runs down the court. What's the way of wisdom, though? What's the biblical answer? The biblical answer is he who does not think he is wise and yet is walking in the way of wisdom. He knows what's right. You see, the way of wisdom and not understanding your wise, not being wise in your own eyes, isn't ignorance. It's not that you're just stumbling upon it. You know the ways that are right, and you are purposely acting according to what is right. But it is not done out of superiority. It is not done to puff you up. It is done in gratification to God, knowing that you are no better than anyone else if it wasn't for the grace of God. For all those things we're so proud of that we do our gifts prepared by God for us beforehand that we cannot boast even in our knowledge, even in possessing it. And having this, having God's word given to us, as we can turn to it and read and, and, and follow this, this is a tremendous blessing that the world doesn't have. We were placed on a far superior plane in the sense that we were given God's word. And then we were given the spirit so that we can live according to it. What a blessing that not, not to boast in and feel superior in. And so we are to be humble, but don't make the mistake of equating humility with lack of resolve or being a pushover. You know, I think we can hear humility and think what humility means is you're sort of the meek one in the corner. You're sort of the one that can be pushed around and you won't respond. Now, there may be applications and ways in which that will be what happens, but biblical humility is not being a pushover. Biblical humility doesn't mean you don't take stands and you don't speak strongly and you don't, and you don't act in strength. A biblically, truly wise and humble man or woman is one everyone around knows they have something. They walk in the right ways. They are wise. What they say is well thought. They are careful. They are compassionate. And yet they're unyielding like, like steel that won't bend. They won't compromise their virtues. Why? Because true humility, true biblical humility is not that sort of meekness. True biblical humility is to say, I have nothing, but God has it all, and I stand in Him, and I trust Him, and in that now there's strength. Humble enough to find no strength in yourself, but all your strength in God. That's biblical humility, and in that way, all of a sudden, you become that fixture, unyielding, yet simultaneously and so beautifully not wise in your own eyes. Not one who seeks to be praised, because you understand all praise should be given directly to God. 
You know what that also means? That means when you are praised, you don't just suck it in like a sponge. Sucking in all that praise, because I, I just want to be saturated with it. Just keep filling it that I can just suck it all up. That's what we want to do. We should be more like a mirror. A mirror that the light bounces off of and reflects immediately away from itself, right to God. We aren't wise in our own eyes. This isn't our wisdom, it's God's wisdom. It's his gift, it's his strength. And as I'm saying that, I hope we would desire as well to truly possess this. It's such a beautiful thing. Something that we should learn, yearn for, and long for in boys and girls. How do you get that? Well, you're like that wise old owl. The more he saw, the less he spoke. Before God's word, you sit. You learn it. You learn it in humility. It's better than that, than seeking positions of praise for ourselves. That's when we fail. That's when we know that we haven't truly reached biblical humility, but have exalted ourselves. James chapter 3, 14 through 16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I'm going to read that again from James three fourteen to 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's demonic. It's unspiritual to be jealous. It's unspiritual to be proud. We are not imitating our Father in heaven. We are rather imitating the very demons who fell because of their pride. The greatest example of humility is Philippians chapter 2, and it presents what Christ did in taking that form of a servant. It's odd to think of God, of Christ, being humble, and yet he was. That prime example of humility, portraying not a demonic spirit, but what we talked about, that rigid, unyielding, biblical, wise man who brought glory to the Father, who sought out what was best for those around him, who treated with compassion those who did not know what was right, and called those who thought they did out on the carpet and called them to repent. The truly humble man, Jesus Christ, this is what he did. We also see in our text that wisdom and humility require turning away from evil. This is an amazingly basic point. It's one we struggle with. We are to turn away from evil. That's what it says. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's what we're talking about is how you do that, turning away from this evil arrogance of pride and also the sins and temptations that come. True humility must be the very foundation of turning away from evil. Every sin has in some way a mark of pride within it. Some sort of idolatry that places us at the center, places our cravings at the center. It's idolatry and it's pride, and fearing the Lord then would demand that we act in humility and turn away from putting ourselves at that center, turning away from evil. 
And if you want to turn away from evil, devote time, energy, and creativity for turning away from it. That's also true wisdom. So often when we try to turn away from evil, what we do is we just say, I can't can't turn from this. I can't change. I can't change. And we just we just sit there. And, and, and sometimes we, we just don't really put a lot of creative thought in it. I'm not trying to say that our spirituality and our sanctification is, is us. It's the Spirit's work. It comes in prayer. But often we don't remove the temptations. Often we don't seek ways to change. Often we don't try to replace the sin with what is glorifying to God. Often we aren't very creative and we don't put much thought into how do we turn from this? Do I need to humble myself and seek help? Do I need to humble myself to realize that I'm not strong enough? I need to set up safeguards for whatever it is, whatever thing is bothering us. What if it's a, an over, being overcome with grief and, and guilt? That's a sin. That's a temptation. Do we need to be humble enough to turn to others and hear them say, you're clinging to this because you're too proud of yourself, because you're not turning it to God, you're not turning it to Christ and realizing your guilt is washed away in Him. You have a low view of God. You don't have the magnificent view of God that you ought to realize that if He calls your sins forgiven, they are. And that takes humility. Whatever the sin is, we turn away from it. And then verse 8 gives us the outcome of what fearing the Lord is. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's, that's just beautiful. Walking in humility, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. What will it be? It will be healing to your flesh, refreshment to your bones. Flesh and bones is a way to describe the whole person. The whole being refreshed. That's so true. You see, imagine even if you are going through a trial or a difficulty right now, it isn't what it could be. Imagine trying to go through the trial that you're going through right now without the gospel news, without God to cling to, without knowing you're washed in Him. You see, we have such a great blessing, such a refreshment always before us, and we do well to look at that refreshment more than the trials or the sin. As we turn, we do find refreshment in Him nourishment to our bones, healing to our flesh. This is what comes in the way of wisdom. And bet on it. Place all your hope in it. This will not fail you. It is the sure investment. That's what Proverbs is saying. We, we qualified that in the first message. We, we talked about what all the promises of Proverbs mean. But it is something that you can count on that God will bless in his own way. And this is no different than Romans 8 is talking about. God does all things for our good. We can trust that as we walk in the way of wisdom. And so we see the way of wisdom is humility. Just very briefly, we're not going to look at these verses in depth. Verses 9 and 10 show that God will sustain and bless and provide for those who do worship Him, who do honor Him. And again, you can see the, the language that's trying to use this overabundance of what God does give and, and how He does bless those who seek to walk according to His wise ways. Verses 11 to 12 help explain the side that our lives will not be walks in the park, that they will not be easy, that we are to regard the discipline of the Lord, not despise it or be weary of it. 
You see in the same verses that talk about the blessings that come from the way of wisdom, we also see the way of wisdom that stands when we are burdened and disciplined by God himself and are to stand strong in it, that God is even working this. Why is he working through this? Because he is not a neglectful parent. A neglectful parent does not discipline their children. A neglectful parent spares the rod to their own downfall, to their kids' own shame and dishonor. We rather see that God cares, and so he does not spare the rod of discipline. He does not spare us from going through those very trials that are the the greatest sources of the growth of faith in our lives. So do not become weary when facing the discipline of the Lord and the discipleship and training of God, that as well as the way of wisdom. But again, we're not focusing primarily on that today. So we see the way of wisdom as trusting in the Lord, understanding Him in humility. But I want to turn our attention. Now this may seem like a total change of topic. Our second point this evening is wisdom's incarnation, Christ. You see, we've been talking about all these principles of wisdom, but what I want to turn here in our final point and the final message on our our brief little stint in wisdom literature of Proverbs 3, I want us to see how all this comes together and points to Christ. One of the most difficult genres of the Bible to see Christ and how it points to him and how it reveals him is wisdom literature. Because it's so clearly behavioral, it's so clearly application for us to do this, to change, to walk according to this. So then how does this reveal Christ? How do we, how do we find him in it and see him revealed? We're going to look at four ways that the riches of Proverbs are properly realized in Christ, seeing that understanding Trust and humility reveal Christ, who is the true way of wisdom. We're going to look at these four ways. How does Proverbs reveal and show Christ? First, Christ is the truly wise man. Christ is the truly wise man. God's word depicts Christ as the ideal student of wisdom. Think of Luke 1, verse 40. Joseph and Mary returned to Nazareth, and it says, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. God's word depicts Jesus as growing in wisdom. Pretty astounding to think that the Son of God himself needed to and did grow in wisdom, but he did. He was a child. His mind developed, his understanding developed, and he was never in sin, but he grew in wisdom. He's depicted as that student of wisdom. He's really depicted as the faithful son in response to the father's words of Proverbs 3. My son heed my teaching. Christ heeded it all. And was that prime student of wisdom? Think as well when he was in the temple and the religious leaders were astounded at one who was so young and yet asked these questions, showing such knowledge and understanding and wisdom beyond his years. For this is what he devoted himself to. Jesus then is that truly wise man. He's, he's the true student of wisdom. He's also depicted as the ideal teacher of wisdom. He's depicted as that student who becomes the best teacher of wisdom that ever was. Christ is the shepherd that leads down the path of wisdom. He stuns people with his wisdom as he conducted his ministry. They were astonished at what he said. All those accounts you think of the religious leaders and Pharisees, the lawyers, which were experts of the law, would come against Christ and try to trip him up. And he had an answer. He outwitted them. He showed that he had a greater understanding and a greater knowledge of how to apply God's word properly than what they did. 
Jesus is greater than the Old Testament human apex of wisdom. Who in the Old Testament is the wise guy? Well, that's, that's Solomon. He wrote so much of our wisdom literature, so much of what we read were Solomon's own words. But Matthew twelve forty two and following says this, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The ideal student, the ideal teacher. Secondly, how does Proverbs reveal Christ? Well, Christ is the fulfiller of the wisdom command. Christ is the fulfiller of the wisdom command. Wisdom is not just suggested. We are commanded to walk in wisdom. And just as Christ fulfilled the law, he fulfilled the true application of all the commandments to life's situations and circumstances. And so Christ filled the law. Wisdom and law are related. They are not disconnected, yet they are a bit different. And Christ, by his obedience, showed, portrayed, and fulfilled for us all wisdom. And as he fulfilled the law on our behalf, we can say we're righteous in him. We can also say we are wise in him. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He is our wisdom. Third, how does Proverbs, how does wisdom literature reveal Christ? Well, Christ is wisdom. Christ is that apex of wisdom. He is the prime example of wisdom. Wisdom isn't something external to himself. Wisdom just spills out of who he is. There are verses that seem to indicate Jesus referred to himself using the term wisdom. In Luke 7.35, he says, Wisdom is justified by all her children. And then in Luke 11.49, Jesus says, Therefore the wisdom of God said, and then he proceeds to speak. He cites himself as the wisdom of God. He is the truly wise man. And fourth, how does wisdom literature, how do Proverbs reveal Christ? Well, Christ is to be praised in terms of wisdom. Christ is to be praised in terms of wisdom. Revelation 5, verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelations, Revelation 7, verse 12 says, They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. Amen. We are to praise our Lord using the understanding that he is the wise one. What's so beautiful about it is, is the many different ways we get to see Christ and his, in the fullness thereof. We get to see it when we look at the law and how he fulfilled it. We get to see that as he is the wisdom of God itself, the truly wise one. In many respects, wisdom, literature, the commands of God are more personal than the law. They're more personal because they deal very clearly with life situations. They're showing us the principles to live and how we handle money, how we discipline and raise children, how we are students, how we are to conduct ourselves in humility, very personal. And in this way, we see Christ as well as the one who fulfills it personally. Wisdom reveals Christ in all these ways. 
Walking in wisdom is to walk in the way of Christ. Walking in the way of wisdom is to display Christ. Walking in the way of wisdom is to please Christ, to point to him, because he is our wisdom. The last thing we want to be are Christian fools. Those who should know better, those who've been given the wisdom of God, the way of Christ, and to ignore it. So common, and we all do it. We all do it repeatedly. Pushing aside what we know is right, pushing aside what we know is wise, pushing aside what we know is Christ-like, and displaying ourselves as a fool. But we take heart in the fact that God gives us this wisdom to grow, to change. And we primarily, and this is the beauty of the gospel, we take heart in the fact that Christ is our satisfaction of wisdom as well, just as he is the satisfaction of the law. Let's go to our Lord and praise him who is truly the wise man in all respects. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, and we turn to you and praise you for your Son, and we praise him in terms of what we have just meditated on and read, that he is our wisdom, that he is your wisdom. He is the true word of God that has created all things. He is the ideal student, the ideal teacher, the prime example, the apex, surpassing all others, for he is wisdom itself. We then pray that as we've been united to him, we would too walk in the way of wisdom, and yet that we would not be wise in our own eyes, but humble, even as he was humble, even as he emptied himself, took on our form and bore it. We pray that we would be filled up with wisdom that always is a mirror reflecting back to you, to your glory and honor. And we do pray we would crave it. We would crave to please you by being able to apply your word into every aspect of life, how we handle money, how we handle even our investments, how we discipline our children, how we conduct ourselves as students, how we walk in the, in the world. May wisdom guide our steps, for it is to Christ's glory. We pray this in his name.